0: Hi, I'm Kimberly Finney, and you're listening to the Wayback Podcast from thewaybacktoourselves.com. I'm a writer, professor, counselor, and dreamer, but most importantly, I'm glad you're here. We have a powerful show planned for you tonight, so let's dive in. But first, I'd like to give you a little disclaimer. Our episode may contain some sensitive material, and it's for mature listening audiences. We'll be discussing men's mental health and the variety of subjects surrounding this much-needed topic. This is not therapy or medical advice, but we do hope it inspires greater conversations that lead to getting and giving help. If you're suffering, please reach out to a professional and the ones you love right away. The national hotline in the U.S. is 988. Today's conversation will be a roundtable discussion for men and the women who love them. November, also known as Movember, is a month in movement dedicated to shining a light on men's mental health. And to help us do that today, we have two very special guests. Blake Roberts is a counselor with his master's degree in marriage and family, and he specializes in men's mental health. And Steve Vesey, artist and writer, is a passionate mental health advocate. Both men have personal ties to this essential topic in addition to the work they do to promote wellness and destigmatizing mental illness and seeking help Blake and Steve thank you for being here i'm excited to lean in and learn with our audience so first i'd love for you to introduce yourselves before we get started
1: yeah thanks for for having me here i'm glad to be here tonight to talk about this i'm Blake Roberts like like you mentioned i'm a Counselor in private practice in just right outside of Nashville, Tennessee, in Brentwood. Live here with my wife and our daughter, who is four months old, Charlotte. So, my life has changed significantly the last few months. And yeah, I've been in private practice for a couple of years, and and work primarily with men. I see some teenage boys and have a few female clients and couples as well. But my main passion and i would say kind of niche is working with with men in their 20s to early 40s coming in with lots of different you know issues that we'll probably get into today and so i'm really glad to to be here and be talking about this and something that is very personal to me but also very formative in the work that i do daily with with folks
0: I actually love how we were able to connect because we found each other on Instagram. And if you haven't followed Blake yet, you definitely should Blake the counselor. He has a beautiful page with some great mental health advice, really practical stuff. He's also a photographer and he has beautiful photography and his new daughter is definitely the subject of many of those great pictures. (laughs) So I'm really glad to connect with you. We tried to do this earlier, but I was the holdup with my health. So tonight feels much anticipated.
1: Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad we were, we were finally able to do it. And yeah, thanks for saying that about, I have a love hate relationship with, with social media. And for me as like a therapist to, to try to take some of the very complex and nuanced things that I try to write about or talk about and, and put into a ten carousel image is kind of complicated, but I try to make it educational and at least something that will spark some reflection. So thanks for saying that.
0: Of course, you're doing a great job. I go there and read too. And then of course, we've got Steve, who I like to say is a friend to all. He's popping up everywhere because he's been doing some great artist collaborations, but I think one of the big things that he's known for is his emphasis on men's mental health and destigmatizing conversations and thoughts and ideas around it. Would you like to introduce yourself, Steve?
2: Absolutely. Well, you did a great job already. Thank you. But
0: <laughs> I didn't um... mean to step on your toes.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. It was good. It was a elevation, so... My name is Stevie C. I am an illustrator, writer, advocate for men's health. Having probably walked through my own mental health struggles over the years and then taking what I'm doing right now with illustrating writing, I think I'm using that as a platform to start a conversation, probably the best way of putting it. Um, Men's mental health is a passion for me. I've got some stories I'd like to share a little bit later about how they personally have affected. I know we've all got our stories with that but it really feels that passion. Naturally, um, I'm an empath, people say that. So I feel a lot of things. So people feel connected to that and got a bleeding heart in that sense. Um, One of the things with mental health, especially with illustration that I don't like to think of it as is we almost talk about it like it's a condition, like just using the phrase mental health specifically, we almost there's like a stigma to it. Whereas when you compare it to like a physical health, We're all we all want to be physically healthy. Mental health almost when we use that phrase sometimes sounds like a disease, if you will. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do is to, like you said, destigmatize that, remove that and say, hey, we all want to be mentally healthy. It's not just something that happens to us. It's something we want to actively pursue.
0: You know, what's really interesting about what you just said, and I've been learning it in some of my studies. And tonight I'm here to be a student and lean in. But the westernized philosophy of separating the brain and our intellectual capacities from the body leaves us disembodied. Whereas a lot of Eastern cultures, it's one and the same, right? So when we talk about physical health, there's an assumption there that we are including the balance and the wellness of our brains and our spirits. So I love that point that you just made.
2: Holistic.
1: Like holistic exactly holistic
0: yeah did you want to jump in blake
1: yeah no i'm really glad that that you brought that or that you named that steve and i was gonna say some version of what you said kimberly is that it's it's so much more When not when i think of or hear mental health there is like kind of a stigma even around that that phrase and what it means and what it doesn't and people may interpret it differently but it's like it's physical health it's mental health spiritual health it's emotional health it's relational and it goes so so much further than the brain and our cognitive abilities and way of perceiving things which i'm sure is will be a theme that comes out and this is primarily where we spend a lot of time probably as men and women in general but specifically men and a lot of my Work with men is helping integrate that our mind and our our head is just such a small percentage of the rest of our body, and all the stuff that we'll talk about lives in our bodies, and the stories and our experiences affect our bodies, and and being like you mentioned, Kimberly, embodied and being connected to that embodiment is is hugely important. And so, uh, yeah, I was just say is I'm really glad that you that you named that. It's so much more than just mental.
0: Exactly. And I think that that would definitely be one great thing to share with our listeners today, the the men that we want to speak to and help and raise awareness for and the women who love them. And really quickly, just to understand, you know, how I'm accessing this is that I've been a public servant and teacher and now professor for 20 years And going through my own disastrous mental health journey and and physical illness, I just started to realize how important this truly was. And it was a little bit of a divine pivot for me to go from, you know, I want to teach English to I want to pivot and get my doctorate in community care and counseling. And I kind of feel like God drove me into this because I realized on my planning period, on my lunch after school. I was spending more time with kids, booking sessions with me for help than I was grading essays. And of course, plenty of girls came to me because they felt comfortable. They probably identified with me. But one thing that was extremely just elucidating for me through this whole process is how many teen boys were coming to talk to me. And it really struck me that they still had the language to say I'm hurting. And yet the men in my life had lost that language. And I always thought, what is happening to young men? You know, I spent most of my time helping 16, 17 and 18 year old young guys. And yet all the men in my life that, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they had lost that skill to be able to name that and to vulnerably share that with a female. For me, I was a mentor, a teacher to them. And so that's one piece. And then the last piece I just wanted to share why my heart just aches. And I know that we'll talk about this. The recent statistics about men's health are very grim. And it's really a silent epidemic that should be on the news every night. There should be more books. There should be everything that we can out there to help save these men, but also our servicemen who are coming back and it's more dangerous for them to come home statistically than it is for them to be in war. And that is something that breaks my heart. We have three men in my family directly right now that have served. I have two brothers in law and one who's actively choosing to heal. And I have a father in law too, and all three of them have suffered. So just to share my heart. I am so aware of it. And sometimes I feel just desperate. I want to be able to help. And I think a lot of women feel that way.
1: I was just kind of taking in what you were sharing. Mm-hmm. Um
2: hey, with you. I was like, no, I, I have nothing to say right now. So I'm just like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So I'll jump in and do a bridge and then you can just come in how you want. So as I share that, that's why I kind of want to just sit at this table and hear from you all because I would like to be more equipped. And we put out a bunch of questions to our audience and we got a lot of feedback. And there are a lot of people and a lot of men, especially because Steve was so wise to put anonymous on his, that they are desperate for more information. They do want us to shine a light on this. They do wanna know how they get through these things. What can they do to equip themselves? What can they do to overcome? So at this point, I would love to just open up this table to you, hear your stories and hear your takeaways and how we can lean in and help.
1: Yeah, I can go. Maybe I, I would share a little bit personally first. As, as I hear you share your why, I, for me, the why is is always really important. I've always, the people that I've listened to, whether it be pastors or educators or other therapists who I really value their opinion, the ones that share their experience or their heart or their struggle, I always feel much more connected to than than the ones that just give the answers or the solutions and which those are so there's so many solutions for what we're talking about because there's not a one size fits all approach and there's many different ways to approach healing and so for me I grew up in a very emotionally disconnected family very emotionally really absent father and a mother who endured a lot from their relationship. Um, I'm, I'm the oldest of three, and there's a pretty big gap between my siblings. My sister is nine years younger than me, and my brother is 11 years younger than me. Same parents. There was just They just took some time in between. And so when I think back to my early childhood and, and development and those really formative years in terms of attachment, which me as a marriage and family therapist, that really just means that I view issues and things systemically. And so part of that is I believe that we're very impacted. And I think the research also attests to this by our our family system. And so our caregivers, the people who act as the stand-ins for certain parts of our brain that aren't fully developed that are responsible for emotional processing and, and all of those things. And so grew up in a, in a system where that wasn't very present and, and the, the dysfunction between my parents in terms of their relationship didn't create a lot of space for them to maybe be, uh, to help develop that secure attachment with, with me because they just didn't have the capacity. And so that led to me, I mean, that's a common theme I see also in the men that I work with is my family didn't talk about emotions and, or my or unless it was anger or typically just unless it was, it, it was anger, there was emotion expressed or, or joy. And I work with a lot of men that are, that grew up in a household that really valued faith too. And and so kind of the positive joyful was emphasized, but not sadness or grief or loneliness. Those, those more negative I'm using air quotes for people listening were, were not welcomed. And so for me, that led just to a lot of disconnection in myself and not understanding what was going on me just as a boy and, and then that subsequently led to me finding ways to get those needs met. And and a lot of that ended up being in, in unhealthy ways, whether it be addiction or relationships. or And it got to the extent to where my junior year of high school I actually attempted suicide. And it was on the tail end of just... My my parents had separated, and there was just a lot happening in the home, and and a lot happening in me. More of what I've learned as I've been doing this this work with people, but also my own work is there was so much happening in me, and when I say that, I mean feelings, thoughts, all sorts of things that I just was completely disconnected from, and disconnected from in the sense of uh, I wasn't consciously aware of it, but it was all still happening in my body. Kind of back to what I was saying earlier about how mental health is so much more than just mental. My body was carrying the, the stories of my parents, the, the abandonment that I felt from the lack of engagement emotionally, the, my body was carrying all of that. And as a teenage boy, not knowing what to do with that? My body is also going to find ways to attempt to release that stress, anxiety, shame, and and I really do believe that it was, it just became so much. I I never really had a plan. My, my story with a suicide attempt was not this egregious plan where I had written the letter and, and and I was kind of setting up for this. It just happened pretty quickly, and and I was the stereotype for the kid that nobody would expect for that to be me because I had lots of friends and very extroverted and successful in sports and school and but meanwhile this you know I was having this whole inner tor- inner turmoil and not being honest about it because I didn't really feel like I had the spaces to do so and. So I'm not saying that my suicide attempt was uh, blaming it on anyone, but all, all that to say is the reason I'm passionate about this work, and there's lots of other reasons I can get into that we probably don't have time for as to why I became a therapist, but a huge part is just what I experienced and what that led to and why I have such an emphasis on helping men, learn how to be in their body and be in their body in the midst of dysfunction or conflict, right? Cause like we're, as long as we're in a relationship, there's always going to be some level of dysfunction and conflict. It's not really how do we overcome that and, and get rid of it, but how do I learn how to show up in my own body in the midst of that and regulate and find safety and and all those things. So I don't know if I got too off topic, but that's just kind of a, a little bit of my why.
0: I think that that was extremely powerful. And thank you for sharing that. I, when I was listening to you speak, I was kind of thinking about the whole beauty from ashes thing, because obviously what happened to you is absolutely, you know, terrible. And I mean, praise God, you're here. But it's amazing what God can do when we name these things and when we trust him and we choose to heal and we choose to make reason, you know, make reason out of things. And then you're able to turn around and use your your grief and your survival story through this to help other men and others that you counsel survive themselves. And just as I was listening to you, I was even thinking about my own mental health trauma and that disembodiment and that lack of integration that you were talking about. And I know as women, we, this is a place where I think our socialization is actually to our benefit and not to yours. Because women are socialized to to talk about their feelings, to be communal, to ask for help. And as men grow, it seems that they're getting an opposite message to become a silo, and I even asked my husband last night. I said, "Listen, I, I just want your take kind of on this because I'm going to be talking with Steve and Blake tomorrow." And I said, "Why? Why don't men ask for help? And why do you think this is happening?" And he said, "Oh, easy shame." And I, I said, "Really? I mean, that's that's it?" And he said, "Well, yeah. I mean, it's more than that, but..." at the end of the day, I'm supposed to be a man. I'm supposed to have answers. I'm not supposed to be weak. I'm supposed to be the one that holds everything up. That's what society tells me. And if I were to say I need help, or if I couldn't handle my business, there's a lot of shame in that. And I think in falling asleep to those internal needs and what your body is screaming at you, like you were talking about, you do grab on to all these other Things to try to make it stop because you don't have the skills or the support or like the emotional landscape inside of yourself that you've been able to cultivate so you can get through trauma and let down and loneliness and whatever it is. And I'm curious, you know, if this is one of the many layers as to why the suicide rates are what they are. I'll just really quickly share a couple. And then I I definitely want to hear Steve's why and his story too. But the past couple of years, the suicide rate right now for men, 80% of people who take their lives in the United States are men. And they've gone up astronomically in the past few years post COVID. And I read on the CDC that almost 140 men take their lives every day in the United States. And that's just in our country alone. And when you think about how many fathers and and brothers and sons and husbands that we're losing to this silent epidemic, it it's very troublesome. It's very heartbreaking.
2: Yeah. One of the things just in introducing myself right now or sharing my story, I've never spoken to Blake before today, ever you know like the one or two messages online but i feel like blake just told my story and like the synchronicity of it is insane to me because listening to him share his story about family life growing up wanting to take his life what was going through his brain that sort of a thing i'm like wow i have nothing to say now because he just shared my story for me essentially but this to me is why we're doing this this is as we hear each other's stories we we hear that so what, what he just described i'm like oh my god like yeah that's that's just it and that's i i don't hope anybody listening to this has walked through it but this is why we're doing it. so mental health for me probably some of the passion around it so like i said i similar household vibe to what what blake shared there but when i was in grade 12 I was in a dark place as well. And I attempted to take my own life as well. Very depressed. I wasn't the athletic jock kid. I was the other end of the spectrum. I was the goth kid. So nobody saw that. And I guess I'd be the one everyone expected to in that in that respect. But it was, I just remember having this thought when I was sitting in art class in grade 12. And I looked around and I'm like, if I wasn't here right now, I don't think anybody would notice. I don't think anybody would, you know, I just felt kind of like a vapor in the room. And just sitting, listening to some music and listening to this system of a down song, this metal song at the time. And it was just really like emotional for me. And I just made the plan. Like, here's the when, here's the why, and here's the how. And so I got very close. I had the date, January 22nd was my day. And someone had intervened in that day and they had invited me to come to, it was actually a a prayer group. At my school which I wasn't connected to a church or anything like that at the time and she very loosely knew me and we were walking into school that day and she's like hey what are you doing at lunch today and I nothing because I already knew what I was going to be doing after school and she just said hey do you want to come to this and so I attended and um really jealous right off the fact to look around the room and have some of my peers and people I didn't know and I was like god these people are happy Why do they get to be happy and I don't get to be happy? So I I took some of what I learned that night and took it home and then had a fairly dramatic conversion experience from there and was fortunate to have that experience. It was an interesting time, kind of getting into the point in life where i say I'm aging myself, but there wasn't any – I didn't have a smartphone in grade 12. Nobody did. It didn't exist until a few years after that. So I do kind of wonder a little bit, what would life have been like? Because at that point, I felt like there was definitely – my opinion on therapy today is significantly different than it would have been at that point in time. When I was 17, that was like, to use that phrase shame, like incredibly shameful. You wouldn't go see a therapist unless you were going to murder someone or you're going to create, I, you know what I mean? Like there was such that stigma around it. Like that was like you, it, it's almost like therapy wasn't even really considered a, a phrase I would hear. It'd be more psychiatric help, like the the further end of that. So so fortunately, I was not successful in that. So over the years, as my mental health journey has grown and changed in the last two years, it's really evolved in in a personal sense. So through my physical health, I'm neurological disorder, so I'm epileptic. A couple of years ago, I they finally found a medication that was first introduced that actually was made for my specific type of epilepsy which was like a godsend because I've been taking medications for years. Nothing works, nothing works. And finally, we found there is a drug actually for my very rare form of epilepsy. So I started taking it. And what I didn't realize was happening while I was on the drug was I was starting to check out of everything. And I didn't know what was happening. But even at work, the people I managed were saying to me, like, you're not you, like, you're a shell of a person. Like, they, I had some pretty good feedback with that. And so partnering with my doctors, they agree that like, we need to get you off of this medication. And so, because I was getting anxious all the time and I never, it's, it's one thing to say you're anxious. It's another to say I'm, I'm feeling like experiencing anxiety.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: all of a sudden I started having panic attacks for the first time. And I, I thought, I didn't know, I thought I knew what a panic attack was, but until you actually have one, I don't think you quite understand to the same extent and, My wife was wonderful, I had it with her and we were driving in the car to the dentist and literally I had a panic attack in the car and it wasn't about the dentist, it just, it happened. It was irrational, but she talked me through it and very calmly like placed her hand on mine while we were in the car and just, this is, you're safe, this is where you are, this is, you know. And so I was was fortunate to have that support. The tricky thing is after I got off that drug, which induced anxiety, then I gained anxiety about having anxiety, which might sound a little cluster, but that's what it was. It's all of a sudden now I'm like, wow, now I'm up till two, three in the morning, anxious that I've been anxious for so long and anxious that I've been experiencing this. So as I've been leaning back into my creative self and pursuing art again in the last couple of years, I've been trying to take that 2 a.m. anxious time and funneling it into creativity Another reason why this is really hitting home for me, or where I'm really passionate about it, is I did have a very interesting experience about, let's say, eight months ago. I had a one of my followers on Instagram reached out to me, and didn't really know him very well. We we'd exchanged a few comments over, like, per like through the chat function or whatever, and we we had a few conversations just about illustrations and writing and that's that. Stuck. But I didn't know him. All I could tell from his social media was this guy had it together. He had all his ducks in a row. He had the family, the job, the career. He really seemed like a good guy all around. And like I said, we weren't friends, at least not what I would consider a friend. And he reached out to me one night and he just said, I need help. I'm like, what do you need help with? And he explained a situation that was going on. And what he was going through and he's like, I just need somebody to listen to me. I need, and there was so much panic there. So we are I was furiously, furiously like messaging him in the kitchen. Is this guy okay? Like, how can I help him? I don't know him. I don't even really know the situation of what's going on. And all the while I'm like, why me? Like of all the people for him to reach out to you online, later he let me know, you know, some of what you've shared through so, through social media and mental health and awareness and that's that that really made me want to connect to you and why you stood out to me even though we didn't know each other so the following day messaged him to just say hey how are you doing and that turned into a weekly thing and then a daily thing and we've become very good friends since then and supporting him through that which is wonderful and in turn he's helped support me through the anxiety i'm going through so we have this nice reciprocating relationship here but where it really hit home for me it was a couple months ago it was his birthday and he sent me a text and said hey do you know what the 27 club is and i did not do you guys know what the 27 club is between the no. two of you no i don't
0: yes please you tell us
2: <laughs> you don't you don't want to know 27 club is a group of famous celebrities and musicians and other people have fallen into it too as well that have all died at the age of 27 specifically most of them have actually taken their life so Kurt Cobain, for example falls into this category there's a few musicians that all just at 27 this is the age where it's happened and he sent me this text saying i thought it was going to be part of the 27 club this year and i just oh said to him goodness. like what are you talking about i'm like doing a google search at this point because i don't even know what that is and um, are you serious He's like i'm going to let you know how real this was i had a plan i have the note written I knew when my I knew when my house was gonna be empty. He's like, and then I sent you the message. And if you hadn't had responded to me that day. And I I knew I knew what he was going through, but not to that extent. And now we're you know, we're six months down the road and I had no idea the impact that it would have on that. Like just showing up and listening can save a life.
0: Oh, my goodness. That is so powerful. And that was kind of something that we were saying on Instagram too to shine a light, even if there's just a one like this podcast, the preparation that we've put into it, the vulnerability and and courage, really, that you have to share your own personal stories. I personally feel like it would be all easily worth it if we reach the one And Steve, I mean, that's exactly what you did. And that's that the advocacy, the art, the vulnerability, and it allowed someone to kind of crack open. And you were talking about how, you know, here's two guys, friends now going back and forth. How can, and this is one of the big questions we got, and it's definitely one of mine is first, maybe we could start with how can men help other men? And I can't answer that. I don't know what that's like. And maybe there are some phrases or some good questions to ask where you all can come beside each other and allow each other to know that there's not shame, that there is support. You're not a burden. And then a question that I would love to tackle later on too, maybe we can loop back to it, is what can women do so we don't accidentally trigger shame or we don't overwhelm the men we love? We want to be able to support them as well in this journey because it seems like a lot of men count the cost, shame or making this disastrous choice, and the choice seems more acceptable to them. And so what can we do to support each other? Well,
1: for, first, I wanted to say thank you to Steve for so many things and what you said, that I would love to maybe we'll have a conversation offline more about just the connection and the similarities in the stories and... What a what a powerful story for you to be a part of with that guy. And that's just it's really beautiful. And and, and I think kind of answers your question, Kimberly, in and of itself of what can we do is, is like Steve said, listening and active listening, right? Open ended questions, being curious, not trying to offer solutions, which is what we as guys typically feel like we need to do with each other but just being honest and I grew up in church and grew up in charismatic churches um, have have my own you know religious trauma which is maybe that's for a different episode
0: I don't want to interrupt but I'm pretty sure that we could have that as a another segment I think we've all got (laughs) those stories
1: yes yes we do um and and uh, it plays a part in what we're talking about. But I, I say that today. I've been a part of lots of different groups, lots of different men's groups, so different accountability groups over the years. And they've been helpful if, in certain seasons where I've needed them. But a lot of them have lacked honesty. And when I say honesty, I mean this is the thing that I was going to take to my grave and not tell anybody type of honesty. Cause that's really where like when your husband said shame, that's where shame can really, I mean it, it operates best in the dark because often shame carries a lie with it. And so if I bring that shame to the light, then the lie or the, the narrative that I am believing about myself is proven as not true or it's reminded of the truth. So if I keep it hidden, then that's where I can really start to believe that it is true and it stays there and builds. And it's funny. You, you were talking about, it's not funny. It's ironic. You were talking about the guy that in your perception of him having it all together, I think on my website right now on my, my counseling website, I have some wording of like helping the men who air quotes, have it all together, but are struggling with anxiety and really loud inner critics uh, because that's often very true in what we portray versus what's really going on. So honesty, and I have lots of clients that are maybe not active in church. And so they're like, where do I even, you know, the friends that I have are like, I start to talk about a problem and they offer me a solution or just, you know, all the stereotypes that we hear of like, you know, just get over it or all those things. And so we, I think we need to do better at creating spaces for that type of honesty to exist. Like there has to be a safe container for it. And I, we could talk more about this at the end, but a, a therapist friend of mine and I are actually kind of working on something similar to that. But that same therapist friend, I met in a recovery room and it doesn't get more honest or vulnerable than meeting somebody in a recovery room. Cause if you're both there, you both know why you're there. And so you're kind of starting at, you know, you're not meeting in, in church on a Sunday where you're kind of putting on your best self. And that was six years ago, maybe. And we've talked on, on the phone almost every day since. And I didn't really grow up having close friends that really knew me. I had a lot of friends, but not friends that really knew me, where I was able to process what I'm feeling and say, you know, work through just all the the things that are happening in me. And we developed this thing called the 3% rule. And because before recovery, we were maybe 50% honest with ourselves and with other people. Then we get into recovery, we start finding some safety and relationship and some mutual vulnerability. And we're, we're a little bit more honest. Maybe we're like 80% honest. And the more we get comfortable with that, then we're like 97% honest which is way more honest than 50% when I was in college or, you know, young twenties, but that extra 3% is really important. And so that's just become a thing for us where we'll share something or we'll be like, Hey, I need to tell you the 3%. Like, here's, what's really going on. Here's how I really feel right now. And that has been, I mean, therapy has been instrumental. Like that's a way recovery groups, communities where I feel like I can be safe and I'm also doing work, but relationships with other guys where I can be really brutally honest and then just listen and care and empathize, and that's been, I mean, that goes a long, a long way. And for a guy who may be listening to this who who may think, like, oh, I don't really have that, and maybe I'm scared to, I can almost guarantee that there's probably some guy in your life in whatever circle, the closest circle, or maybe some extended circles who is walking around with that same thing that you're walking around with, because he probably doesn't know that you're wishing you had a closer relationship with another guy and not having it because you're not expressing it. And so that's another thing I think we can, become disillusioned to is like, I'm the only one who feels this way. So we make up these stories about other people. But when I'm working with guys and and they're talking about like wanting deeper connection, like, well, that friend that you talked about that you, you know, play fantasy football with, you already have somewhat of a relationship or that you connect with over music. And have you ever like just said something like that? he's like, well, no. Like, well, I wonder what would happen if you did, right? Like leaning into that fear and, and being willing and okay with doing it clumsy of like, I don't even know what this means, but I just know that this is what's going on in me and I don't really know how to talk about it, but I want to because, yeah, the odds are there are other guys already in your life that are feeling that same way. And Steve's story is a perfect example of that. Vulnerability breeds vulnerability. I think Brené Brown said that. and. It just takes one person to to initiate that conversation. And you may get a response that's that's not what you need. Maybe they try to fix it. Maybe they try to tell you to get over it. Okay, that's just good data that maybe that's not the relationship that you need to keep leaning into in that way. But you don't really know until you take that step of, of walking in and being vulnerable.
0: That is so good because it is, and Steve's story proves it, that you just need to find the one. Find one person, and that could be all the difference, right? And I also think, especially because how my husband was talking about it, and I've heard you say it, and I, I've witnessed it, but a lot of men feel like they have to be these silos. And you're together, you go throughout your day, you're working, you're providing, learning, learning doing life with the people that you love. And you feel sometimes like you're alone in it. And like what you were saying, Blake, that I'm the only one who feels like this. And then there's that shame and it breeds in the dark. And I definitely know from my own experience that when I kept my shame inside, and that was for an extremely long time, it almost cost me my life as well. But when I finally found the courage to get into counseling, to say something, to have the breakdown, to ask for help. That's when you can expose these lies and they slowly disintegrate. And it's not easy. You have to do the work. But when you have that person, you have somebody that you can air them to, whether it is your therapist or your best friend or your wife, You know, whoever that is, that there's hope. There's hope to see that I'm not alone. This is this human experience, these feelings that I'm having that are overwhelming my body and my mind and my spirit. I'm not the only one.
1: Yeah, that's well said. And one thing I will say real quick, Steve, before you go is to that, the parts of us that say, you know, you're the only one. I'm the only one who struggles with this, or I'm afraid to reach out and share this or be vulnerable or the parts of us that do that, do that for really good reason. Like in other words, they, they served us well at some point because maybe it wasn't safe to be able to express or expose my vulnerability because it, it, back to the attachment thing, it threatened my attachment Gabor Mate, who is, is kind of like one of the renowned experts in trauma research and, and early childhood attachment, talks about the sad reality that children have to choose between attachment and authenticity. And so I may not express what is really happening in me because it may threaten my attachment because my caregiver can't handle what is authentic in me. And so I learned to not express what is authentic in me because I need the attachment to survive. And, and so that's a, that's a protective strategy to keep me safe. I'm using air quotes because it, it does keep me safe then, but that strategy, that neural pathway gets stuck and I continue to do that and, and then every relationship that I'm in is not really safe because I'm not used to that. I have to keep parts of me hidden or keep parts of me back because it's not safe to express it because maybe when I did express it, this happened. Or maybe it was just never welcomed in the beginning, and so I don't even have any sense that it's safe. And so those parts of us that do that, we have to be really curious about and not critical of. Because if we just rush past that, then we could, you know, you don't have to. I had a therapist once ago when I when I started to realize that it's it's okay to share things. And he, he was like, you, know, you don't have to share thing everything with everybody. Like,
2: oh,
1: <laughs> right. Because we have to have boundaries with it, too. But the parts of us that do that are really working to protect us from being harmed again and so being curious about that resistance to open up or share rather than critical of it is is kind of foundational in my opinion
0: yeah i agree so much and i totally want to hear from steve but before i lose that little thread of thought that you were talking about we did have people ask about book ideas for people and one book that was foundational to me in my studies for mental health counseling and in my own life is by Alice Miller and it's called the drama of the gifted child and it's a really thin read she writes it for other counselors but it's accessible to us and I highly recommend it because it does hit on what Blake was talking about that and and this is for men and women but as children when we do go through trauma or neglect or abuse, we learn tactics that help us survive. And that is a beautiful thing. It's actually why she named it the drama of the gifted child, because you have innate gifts inside of you that allowed you to survive. However, if you don't reassess those tactics, those skills in adult life, and like you said, those neural pathways keep getting hardwired, we end up having dysfunctional adult lives because it breeds perfectionism. It can breed obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, anxiety. And the work of the book talks about how you unpack those things. You get curious with love for yourself rather than shame. And that was one thing that I think was foundational for me. And I can only imagine, especially as for men who are socialized out of being in touch with those things and being able to name them that, If you could somehow get curious with love for yourself about the very things that you feel shamed about, that you can really take a corner because when you do lean in and you get curious about those exiles, you know, if we're talking about internal family systems and Richard Swartz, and this is a bird's eye view, and this is another great book I would recommend is anything on internal family systems and especially for men is you have parts of yourself that you have exiled and rejected. And these are the hurting parts, the broken parts, the parts that you were saying, I'm only 50% honest, it's the other 50%. (laughs) And when you've exiled them, you can't heal, you cannot become whole with your core self, your identity. And you tend to send out firefighters and managers to protect those broken parts. And the managers are going to manifest And this is where I was. I was a manager, perfectionistic, passive, people pleaser, living without boundaries. You want to be likable to all falling asleep to yourself and your own needs. And the other way, and this is how a lot of men manifest, is the firefighter. And that is building a really tough exterior, being the silo, struggling maybe with anger or rage or the shame. And tends to go to drinking or drugs, alcohol to hide and stuff and put out the fire versus what Blake was saying about leaning in and getting curious about those broken parts. So if you're listening and for men and women both, those are some great resources that can kind of point you in the direction of the really fundamental things that Blake was just talking about.
2: So I think for just the time to tie into that topic of men helping men. I think one thing that's really important to highlight is I think that many men do actually desire authentic relationships with other men. And that is really, really important to highlight. I think that there's a loneliness that exists for many men as well. A lot of men aren't as confident as they come across. It's almost like the term man or men is synonymous with confidence, but it isn't an inherent thing. You aren't born with confidence. (laughs) So we have many insecurities and I think we do want deep, meaningful relationships, but I think a lot of us don't know how because vulnerability equals weakness. I know I've had a tricky time in person with, with different guy friends over the years where, you know, we go for coffee and to me, I'm I'd rather have one or two really close friends than have, you know, a few drifters. I'd rather have a couple like Blake was describing some people that are really, you know, I can get that 97% with that. That's kind of what I would love in friendships. And I've gone out for coffee with guys over the years and going for coffee and, and knowing that they're going through stuff, knowing that they have stuff going in their lives and trying to figure out how to bring it up or, you know, bring up the, the topic or the subject without outwardly just calling it out. And often I find the conversation then drifts over to work or, you know, the, Day to day life, it's tough within that. But I've I've even had I've heard from friends' wives before. I mean, like, hey, my husband is really depressed. Can you go for coffee with him and have a conversation? And it's almost deflating in a sense when you want to have that deep conversation, the other person doesn't reciprocate or you know want to or whatever reason, and you leave and you're like, man, I I couldn't get through. But the thing is, if take a step back and maybe maybe that was the breakthrough, and you just couldn't see it. Maybe that was the breakthrough for that person because you showed up and you listened. Maybe it had. Maybe we didn't have to talk about what was making them depressed, but they just needed somebody to see them, and that's that's the best we can hope for in that sense.
0: That is so good. It's like planting seeds sometimes, I think. So there you have it, friends. That concludes the end of part one of our podcast with Stephen Blake on men's mental health. And I hope that you tune in next week to hear part two. If you loved part one, I think you might like part two even better as we dig in deeper. We're going to be talking about why the suicide rates are where they are, some great reading resources for you, some great skills, and how women can help the men that they love who might be struggling or in crisis. I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised, even though I had really high expectations for this, because the three of us getting together and talking about such a dense and intense topic, and having just met Blake, I couldn't get over where we were able to go and the connection between Blake and Steve's story. I also really, really love the perspectives that we bring with Blake being a mental health counselor, specializing in men. And then having Steve as an artist, as a friend, and empath, and obviously an ambassador and advocate for men's mental health. And then having myself, I'm studying this now, having that woman's perspective and having a lot of curiosity and wanting to lean in and learn. I hope there was something in it for you. I cannot wait for you to hear next week. And if you enjoyed this podcast, one of the best things that you can do is go on and give us a rating, leave us some feedback, and share it with someone that you love. Until next week, be blessed, and you belong here as we go on the journey on the way back to ourselves.